0: For I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and the Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Would you please pray with me? May the words of my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts be acceptable in thy sight, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. Jesus is in the middle of his preaching. He's in the middle of his sermon on the mount. And whenever Jesus teaches, there are fireworks, in large part because the things Jesus has to say usually runs counter to everything we think we know. The sermon begins innocuously enough with a bunch of blessings. We looked at them last week. Albeit a bunch of blessings that don't really make sense according to the convictions of the world. Blessed are the poor in spirit. Blessed are those who mourn. Blessed are the last, the least, the lost, the little, and even the dead. And then Jesus goes on with a short discourse about salt and light. Y'all, not you, y'all, Jesus says, are the salt of the earth and the light of the world. Basically, y'all bring the flavor and people are going to see me through you. It's a wonderful bit of metaphoric reflection from Jesus. He takes these simple images, these symbols that nearly everyone is familiar with, and he uses them, like any good preacher, to help people see something about who they are And whose they are. But these things come with warnings. He says the salt that provides zero flavor is worthless. And light that is hidden results in more darkness. And then comes the new teaching. It's all new. But this part is the beginning of the end for us. This is when what Jesus has to say makes us squirm in our pews. I've come not to abolish the law. I've come not to leave it all behind in the past. I'm not here to destroy what you've heard. I've come to fulfill it. What in the world does that mean? I have come to fulfill it. We, the people of God, have always had plenty of trouble observing God's commandments. Whether it's the ten handed down on Sinai or the 600 or so others that are in the Old Testament. And yet Jesus says that if any of us break any of these commandments, if we teach anyone to relax the commandments, we will be called the lowest in the kingdom of heaven. And that would be enough to cause us pause. But Jesus doesn't stop there. Listen, he says, Unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and the Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Now it's hard to keep track of all these commandments, all these rules. Ten is hard enough. Another 600 makes it a little complicated. What's really at stake here, Jesus? I mean, is there one commandment that's more important than all the others? Well, thankfully, somebody asked him. Hey, Jesus, which of the commandments is the most important? And he says... You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, with all your strength. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two hang all of the law and all of the prophets. Thanks, Jesus. That sounds pretty easy. I can love God. I can love my neighbor. But, of course, we don't even do those. We all worship other things, thereby putting something in front of God. And when push comes to shove, we generally look out for ourselves ourselves at the expense of our neighbors. Even John Wesley, the founder of what became the Methodist movement, he tried to distill it down. He tried to whittle down all the commandments, and he came up with what he called three simple rules. Have you ever heard of a simple rule? There's no such thing. Anyway, John Wesley said there are three simple rules to have your righteousness exceed that of the scribes and the Pharisees. Do no harm. Do good. Observe the ordinances of God. It sounds a little bit easier than what Jesus had to say, but we still don't do those either. We regularly harm ourselves and others. We avoid doing good things and observing the ordinances of God, showing up in church every week, praying daily, reading the scriptures, tithing. I don't know. We do that here, but other churches, they don't do that. Jesus says, unless our righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and the Pharisees, we will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Oddly enough, within a few years of Jesus' crucifixion and resurrection, St. Paul will write to the church in Rome and he will say, none of us is righteous. No, not one of us. So what are we supposed to do? Christians have, since the very beginning, struggled with this part of Jesus' sermon. And to be honest, it's only going to get harder. Next week, with the next part of the sermon, you have heard it was said, but I say to you, you have heard it said, you shall not commit adultery, but I say to you, if you look at someone with an impure thought in your mind, you're an adulterer. But we'll save that for next week. Maybe God will give me something to talk about in the next six days. Maybe we can feel a little bit better about our meager righteousness if we have any righteousness at all because the scribes and the Pharisees, those we're supposed to compare ourselves to, they weren't very righteous to begin with, sure. They had all the outward signs. They knew all the laws. They showed up to synagogue. They knew all the rules. But they followed the law at the expense of others. They left behind the widowed, the orphan, the last, the least, the lost, the little. And yet if Paul is right, that none of us is righteous, then what are we doing What is the point of all this if none of us are righteous? Every organization, every institution subscribes to its own theory of change. We human beings, we're not static creatures. There's a great gulf between where we are and where we can be. And every group, every organization, every institution has an idea about how people can change. For instance, the self-help industry, I love to knock on the self-help industry, believes that we can help ourselves and self-help. We merely need to read all the right books, follow those five simple steps to being the best version of yourselves, and then it will all work out. And yet, if those books worked, there would no longer be a self-help section in the bookstore. We keep flocking back to them because no matter how much we try to help ourselves, we still need more help. The church similarly has our own theory of change, though we don't talk about it very often or we don't acknowledge it. We just kind of assume that if we read our Bibles, that if we pay attention to sermons, pay attention to the sermons, if we pay attention, if we show for the right small groups if we put enough money in the offering plate, we will finally change for the better. The great challenge with this theory, though, is that it doesn't work. It doesn't work. Trying to use words and information to change somebody else, it doesn't work. Have you ever tried to have a rational argument with someone from the other side of the political spectrum? Have you ever tried to tell them, look, I'm right about this, you're wrong, and if you would just listen to me, you would be right like me. Have you ever tried that before? It's called Thanksgiving, it's a bad idea. (laughs) Have you ever encountered someone who smoked cigarettes and tried to convince them to stop smoking? Have you ever looked out at a bunch of sinners and told them, you need to start being more righteous? It doesn't work. We can't will ourselves, or anyone else for that matter, to really change or, or move into better behavior. We can't rid ourselves of our sin. Only God can do that. Which is why in the church we talk about something called the law-gospel distinction. The difference between the law the gospel Jesus is hammering his listeners with the law and there's no leniency whatsoever whatsoever which should leave us shaking in our boots or to put a more liturgical spin on it it should bring us to our knees which is kind of the point the primary purpose of the law the call to righteousness isn't so much about what the law says we're supposed to do it's about what the law does to us Because the law reveals the truth about who we are, that no matter how many books we consume, no matter how many great sermons we hear every single Sunday, all of us will forever be sinners in need of grace. Basically, the law functions in such a way to help us get to a point where we can see ourselves with enough clarity that we could ask, why would God ever love me? Why would God ever love me? me and when we can be in a mature place enough to ask that question we're not far from the kingdom of god we're not far from the gospel again law and gospel the gospel the good news is that jesus is the only one who can make us righteous because we can't do it on our own but then there's this question that still lingers i mean how does jesus do that I know, I recognize the irony of preaching a sermon about how sermons can't really do anything, so just bear with me for a minute. I get it. But the Sermon on the Mount, this proclamation from the Lord, is the beginning of what constitutes the community we call church. This sermon that he he gives, it's not a bunch of tips about how to be better people. Jesus doesn't sit on the Sermon on the Mount and say, you know, it's time for us to start actually recycling those twos and the bottles and styrofoam. Stop getting so much styrofoam when you go out to eat. And, you know, you should floss every morning and every eat That's not what Jesus is, is doing. What Jesus is saying is, you won't be righteous on your own. But there's a place, it's this place actually, where you can gather with people just like yourselves dealing with your inability to be good the law the call to righteousness it forces us to the gospel to that embrace of god it requires us to rest in jesus's amazing grace to do for us what we can't do for ourselves in other words we can't change through our minds if we ever change it's through our hearts change is only ever possible through relationships not through requirements but even that is almost impossible so difficult that only God can really change us happens when that gift of the Holy Spirit dwells in our hearts Paul says our hope does not disappoint because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the power of the Holy Spirit people are changed not through their will their choices their actions and neither are people changed through their consumption of knowledge people are changed through their hearts through love and judgment kills love When we feel judged, i.e. when we are told what to do, it's the surest sign and the surest way that we're going to hide our love away, that we're going to put up walls, that we're going to resist the call to change. Augustine says that the law commands rather than helps. It teaches us what's wrong, but it doesn't actually heal us. In fact, it increases what it does not heal, so much so that we will seek the gift of grace. The church doesn't exist to judge the world, but to proclaim the gift of God's unending power and love in the person of Jesus Christ, we do what we do to help ourselves and help other people encounter the risen and loving God revealed in Jesus. The experience of being met by God in our sin, in our need, is what actually leads us to change. Basically, guilt only ever produces more guilt. Love, on the other hand, can do anything. Love can actually change things. A few years ago, I was listening to the radio. Have you ever heard of the radio before? It's this little strange thing when you're driving. If you push the right buttons on your dashboard, someone starts to talk to you. It's amazing. I was driving, and I heard this story on the radio, a story of love, a story about a man named Daryl Davis. Now, Daryl Davis is a very interesting man. He's a black blues musician, and for the past 30 years, he has spent his... Uh, free time doing something outrageous. He has befriended members of the Ku Klux Klan, and as a result of all of Daryl Davis' friendships, over 200 Klansmen have given up their robes. It's amazing. It's like a miracle. I always wonder. Like I remember hearing this. I said how did he do it? How did he convince 200 Klansmen to give up the ropes? I I thought, do you think that he went to a Klan meeting with a a list of five actionable items to stop making people so racist anymore? You think that's what he did? Do you think he, he went to a Klan meeting and said, I have a book I'd like you to read. It might make you not so racist anymore. No, he actually did something much harder and far more dangerous. He became friends with them. In the story on the radio, he said about how it all started at a bar called the Silver Dollar Lounge. Don't you love when sermons talk about bars? Real transformation. It started at uh, the Silver Dollar Lounge when after uh, Davis had played a set of music, a set of blues music, a white man walked up to him to thank him for his performance, and he said, You know, I can't believe that a black man could play the blues so well. (laughs) Daryl Davis was a bit confused. And so he said to this white man, I'd like to buy you a drink. I'd like to talk to you about music. And so he did, he, he bought him a drink and they sat down together at this small table and, and Davis shared with him about music and musicians and about how the blues comes from black musicians. And he, he even recommended some albums for this man to go by that he might learn more about this heritage called the blues. And as they were talking, the man said to him, you know, this is the first time in my life that I've ever shared a beer with a black man. Davis, again, was a bit confused. He thought, I've shared beers with plenty of white guys in the past. I wonder how it is that this man has never had a beer with a black man before. And he said, well, why is that the case? And the man reached into his wallet, and he pulled out a card that said he was a member of the KKK. Now, Davis said that he knew in that moment he should have run. He said he knew that he should have hidden himself away somewhere, but instead, something happened to him. He started laughing. Like, deep belly laughing at this white man with his KKK membership card. And the man said, why are you laughing? And he said, because you don't believe that. You wouldn't be sitting here having this conversation with me if you believed what they had taught you. And the man began to change. It didn't happen right away. It took a long time. It happened because... Davis refused to abandon his new friend. They kept getting together, they kept talking about music, and eventually the man woke up one day and said his heart had changed and he turned in his robes. And then Daryl Davis did it 199 more times. Change is hard, just about the hardest thing we can ever do. But why is it? when the choir gets up here and they sing Be Thou My Vision, I'm sitting in a pew right there and I become a puddle of tears. Why does that happen? Why do we become friends with people and invite them over for dinner at our house? Why do we ooh and ah over sunsets and sunrises? Well, I think it's because beauty changes things. It brings forth this sort of emotive response within us. It's because half of all the gorgeous things in the world, they lie hidden in the glimpsed city they long to become. In short, all of those delightful things in life, they point us away from the way things are to the way things can be. We call that the kingdom of heaven. But make no mistake, love, the kind of radical love that leads to KKK members turning in their robes, that kind of delight and love is dangerous. And yet that's the kind of radical love that God has for you and for me. A people completely undeserving. Our lives are such that God encounters us at the bars in our lives and says, tell me more about yourself. And we pull out a card from our own wallet except ours says we're a sinner. And God doesn't give up on us. In fact, God keeps showing up again and again and again even to the point of the cross with nothing but the gospel, in the bread and the cup, through the hard word of the cross, we all receive a righteousness that far exceeds anything the scribes or Pharisees could ever have hoped to do on their own. We receive the righteousness of God. The gospel doesn't promise the possible, it delivers the impossible. The gospel gives what the law demands. That's why God's love is so strong it can even change us. Martin Luther once said, God accepts none but the abandoned, makes no one healthy but the sick, gives sight to none but the blind, brings life to none but the dead, and makes no one righteous except sinners. People like us. And so I offer this to you in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, one God now and forever. Amen.